0: This is Make It Plain, M.I.P. With Mark Thompson, Make it Get Woke. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to talk about, here on Make It Plain, one of my favorite subjects, baseball. But, not really great news to tell about it right now, because if you've not heard, I'm sure you have yet. There's an MLB lockout in effect. We're going to talk about this. Some people are confusing this from what happened in 94. 94 was a strike. This is a lockout, very different. We'll get into that. Happy to have with us from Payday Report, which covers labor in news deserts. We want to hear about that too. And he's been tweeting about the lockout, and I thought we could use his insight. Mike Elk from Payday Report joins us here on MIP today. Mike how are you buddy? Good it's great to be on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you um, uh, for joining us. First of all tell us a little bit about uh, Payday Report.
1: Well Payday Report is a crowdfunded labor publication. Six years ago I was legally fired for union organizing at Politico and I won a large settlement and invested the money in starting my own crowdfunded publication. We didn't make a lot of money the first couple years. Now you know we have enough of of a revenue coming in to support a staff of two and a half. It's a shoestring budget, uh, but we do things other news publications can't. For instance, um, we run a strike tracker. We've tracked over 1,700 strikes since the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. Um, and we've helped change the narrative. Uh, the New York Times cites us, NPR cites us, Washington Post cites us. Um, and we were just nominated for an Emmy for our work with CNN. Uh, so we do some partnerships with other publications, but we run our own publication. We, you know, Our, our audience is really people that are out in movement. That really want to know what's happening in fights. That can learn lessons from fights. Uh, so often, when we see coverage of labor issues, it becomes this dollar and cents thing. It becomes this he said, she said thing between the company and the union. It becomes this poverty point thing. But rarely do we actually have images of workers, uh, you know, being you know political actors who have a lot of autonomy in their own life, uh, who can do stuff. And you know, as somebody who grew up in a pretty blue collar uh, union family here in Pittsburgh, uh, where I live. I lived just 15 minutes from where I grew up. Uh, it always kind of upset me, uh, going to college and meeting these people who were lecturing people, but had no real uh, understanding of what it means to sort of be in a community-wide place, you know, to live in a neighborhood where, where once there's a 5,000-person uh, factory. I was entirely unionized, and a lot of the people who grew up in my neighborhood were part of that union, part of that political struggle. And I think we've really lost track of that. So Payday really seeks to aim to talk to folks that are in the movement, as well as we break through the corporate media quite a bit. Um, and so we, you know, travel around. We try to focus on plays in the Rust Belt, in Appalachia, in the South. And my personal love of my life is, is baseball. So <laughs> to see a labor struggle and baseball coincide uh, is a story that we thought was very important to cover, Especially since uh, we haven't seen much coverage of it, in part because the players' union doesn't want to mobilize fans. I mean, you know, here you have a lockout, a major labor dispute happening uh, in America's past time, a cultural symbol, symbol that matters a lot. And we're not seeing labor really pick up uh, this cause in the way that it should. And, and that has a, a big ripple effect. Um, you know, we saw last year uh, in 2020... Uh, you know, we had the NBA strikes, which was all the other sports striking. And then you really, you know, our statistics showed on our tracker that there wasn't really a ripple effect. And we all know that sports are huge cultural symbols. We all know tons of people, you and I do, that um, watch baseball, that watch ESPN all day long. And so if we're going to have a fight uh, in the uh, America's past, it should get wide attention. And I think what they're fighting over is very similar to what so many Americans are fighting over in this age, they've dubbed the Great res- Resignation. You know, we've seen for the last couple months, four million people quit their jobs after the pandemic, uh, they a labor shortage for a variety of reasons. Uh, and we're seeing folks say, you know, that we're treated as essential workers, that they no longer want to be treated that way. Now, in baseball, they can keep you under the control of one team for up to seven years in the minus and six years in professional life. And, and this uh, means that people up until about the age of 30 have no real freedom is where they want to raise a family, where they want to root, live, and, you know, they're treated as if they have no freedom. And, and the other big issue we're seeing in the baseball strike is, you know, you have teams like here in Pittsburgh where, um, you know, we get all kind of profit sharing from the Yankees and other places like that, uh, but you don't actually spend it on players. You know, instead you have what's called tanking where a small budget team like the Pirates, you know, you have these owners that are very capitalist that think, oh, the team's always going to be bad. Uh, So we're not going to invest a lot of money into them because, oh, how are we going to compete? And so instead, they take that money from the revenue sharing and they take it home just as profits. And quite frankly, I I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to the fans. I don't think that's fair to the teams that are paying that kind of money. And so I think this lockout, I I mean, it hasn't gotten quite as much attention because it's not in the middle of a season, but it does have very real ramifications for many of the players. Many of the players who are in rehab are cut off from their health insurance. They're cut off from their salaries. uh, And you know, it's a chance for the labor movement, I think, to take on one of America's cultural symbols. And, you know, a win baseball could inspire workers in other industries. And I think, I don't know if you feel this way, I think so much, so many people on the left get into this kind of knee-jerk anti-sports mentality. And I don't really understand that.
0: Well, especially for a lot of reasons, because baseball is a cultural symbol and um, a cultural symbol with some significant as we know civil rights history even though there's been kind of a reversal and even um significant labor history um and and while there's still a lot more to be done i mean we we have free agency uh because in in all sports because of kurt flood and major league baseball but i want to go back to something you said first of all you you said that did i understand you correctly that the players union is really not trying to organize the fans yeah, there they haven't been any real effort. I mean, I've talked to baseball
1: fans. that can't tell you what this lockout is about. And I'm talking folks that are political activists I'm talking to folks uh, that, are, that are always tuned in, you know, to all that why do you, stuff.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think the, the players' union doesn't want to do that? Because that's – they should, but why do you think that is?
1: I think part of it is that they've always had this sort of um, relationship with a lot of the owners and other unions are this way that, you know, we can just work things out at the bargaining table. And we don't want too much media attention because look what happened to us in 94 and 95 when, you know, I, I was nine years old when that happened. And for me, I was looking through Google stock of players on strike. And I saw all these photos of fans bashing the players for striking, which was pretty, pretty loud you know, the bashing of the fans for striking, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the players. And, you know, remember Sports Center and ESPN in those days, they, they, think, they think they can resolve this at the bargaining table and they don't want to get the public too involved because they fear that. And this is a very old school union approach. Uh, they fear that, that they're going to make this about salaries. When what I'm saying is I think, you know, look, baseball players want the same freedom to change and move cities like any other American. And baseball players, you know, they want to see small towns, smaller cities like Pittsburgh, uh, be able to compete in baseball. And I think they need to make it about that. Otherwise, you know, the media and the owners have their own, which is the players, the greedy players that don't want to expand playoffs, the greedy players that don't want universal DH, you know, the greedy players that want to keep the game uh, the same old way. The greedy players are getting in the way. And so if you don't message it, and so I think right now, you know, just even from talking to friends,
0: there's no real clear message on it. Yeah. Yeah. More M.I.P. after this message. And you're right. The, 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 the players have been silent. But but let's try to get some perspective on this. What what is it um, that you see as the players demands? What is it that they want that the owners are resisting giving to them?
1: Well, what they're what they're resisting is, um, you know, they want to see the service time that a team can keep you under contract reduced from six years down to five. I've seen rules against playing with that service time, and they want to see teams that get revenue sharing checks actually invest in those teams. I mean, every year with the Pirates, we have a fire cell You know, we'll develop a couple good players. And then we'll trade them away, and sometimes we get back very good players like Brian Reynolds. Yeah, I mean, look, we got uh, Brian Reynolds in the trade for Andrew McCutcheon. That was a good trade, and sometimes teams have to do that trade veteran players for prospects. But a lot of times, I mean, look, you know, we traded away Tyler Glass now and Austin Meadows to the Rays. We don't have a single player we got out of that trade on the team still, while they're being powerhouses for the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, We traded away Garrett Cole. Uh, We don't have a single player left from that trade on our team or anybody we traded away So we're constantly, you know, we just traded away Jacob Stallings, the catcher, gold glove, winning catcher, best defensive catcher in the league uh, for nothing. So we're at a point uh, where we really uh, have to ask ourselves, uh, you know, what do do we want as teams? And I think the players union and maybe they're hesitant because of their own position as, as wealthier people in society needs to make this about redistributing wealth, about regular folks having more control, and they need to get baseball players out there on picket lines. We're seeing a record number of strikes right now, and this would be a great chance for baseball players to make common cause with other workers that are locked out. I was just reading about a group of oil workers who've been locked out in Beaumont, Texas, for nearly six months. Uh, We could connect these causes. We could use people that are heroes, uh, that have an ability to go into spaces, and change the way people think about certain relationships, certain dynamics in society, class dynamics, as well as racial dynamics. Uh, Because, you know, the players that are most disadvantaged in the current setup are Latino players. You know, they get signed when they're 16, 17 years old for peanuts. They get forced into a minor league system where the minimum pay is $500 a week. uh, And and they get really badly exploited. And so, you know, half of all baseball players now are Latino. Uh, And so, you know, we can't, you know, claim that this wouldn't resonate, that this couldn't be connected to other issues happening in society. I think there's a fear, and I think sometimes with organized labor, you know, an a old union leader once said to me, in so many ways, organized labor is conservative. It's about keeping what they have, you know.
0: And, and, and we know, too, that um, since the Reagan years, um, organized labor has has declined in popularity and that's by design we know that that was a whole agenda uh that came in with ronald reagan unfortunately so uh, reducing the service time seeing two of the teams don't just tank um you you mentioned the pirates your hometown team and one of the things that that drew me to you was that you wrote about how uh, major league baseball for those you don't know has scrubbed the images of all current players from all of his websites. And it's posting um, images of former players, past players, Hall of Famers from their glory days. And you pointed out one in particular, Roberto Clemente, uh, not to mention others, but we'll focus on Roberto since that's your hometown, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, He would not have wanted, I don't think Jackie Robinson or Hank Aaron would either, but they would not have wanted their MLB exploring their images during, this lockout because they would have stood with the union right well roberto clemente was the
1: first union rep for the national league ever in the history of the national league he was the first league-wide rep and you know we talk about kurt flood uh when kurt flood went up and was asking for support from the players union to challenge the reserve clause which basically tied a player to one team for life he had a lot of trouble getting other teammates behind him and i wrote up a story based on historical research from various books and interviews um talking about how when Flood was isolated in a room, not even Reggie Jackson would get his back. Uh, His own teammates wouldn't get his back. But Clemente stood up as probably one of the best players in the league at that point and called on people to do it. And, you know, we talk about the depolitization of Clemente a lot here in Pittsburgh because we celebrate him a lot, you know. But, you know, Clemente used to host Martin Luther King on his farm in Puerto Rico. And, you know... Uh, I think that would make a fascinating movie, a Netflix movie. Someone should do that. A Weekend of Clemente and Martin Luther King on a Farm. I mean, I would just love to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. Uh, But when King was assassinated, Clemente organized, uh, you know, players refusing to play (laughs) as a protest. And it was the first time there was ever a work stoppage in Major League Baseball. So the idea that Clemente would somehow be okay with his images being used like that is an absurd and it's offensive. It's offensive to the legacy of Clemente.
0: More MIP after this message. And I think, too, he would have been outspoken, unfortunately, you know, sometimes, many times nowadays. Because back in, you know, I was talking with some, with some old heads about that, too. Because we always talk about the, the first all-Black starting nine in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. But if that would to have happened today, it wouldn't be the same because see, back in that day, even the Latino brothers were considered black. It was all the same. but you know, but what westernization has done and and all of that, I mean, it thrives on division. and so unfortunately, some Latino players today don't consider themselves black, but if Dr. King had lived and Roberto Clemente had lived, I mean I think that's something that would have Continued. Obviously, Roberto didn't separate himself from, from, from the black community, but clearly, well, we're quite, quite, quite,
1: quite to the opposite on f- quite a few occasions. There's historical record. He's being called Latino, and he says, "No, no, no I'm black." <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, right. no. I mean, uh, which is which is interesting because uh, I mean, in the early night, in the mid 1950s, it's quite interesting. Clemente used to hang around Pittsburgh with a bunch of Sicilians and claim that he was part Italian as a way to pass. <laughs> Which is, which is funny because my uncles who were off the boat from Italy would all claim, oh, yeah, he's Italian. And I always thought they were confusing him with Franco Harris, the star football player, the Hall of Famer here, because Franco's half black, half Italian. Yeah, he, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was actually because in his early career, Clemente had gone around and hung out at so many Italian restaurants and claimed that he was Italian. So this was a rumor he put out there. But, um you know, Clemente. You know, his experience uh, was really radicalized. Uh, it was radicalized by having to play in such a racist environment like Pittsburgh, right. when he really wanted to be in New York in those years, and thought he would have really thrived in a place like New York with a large Puerto Rican community.
0: No, I, no, no doubt that he would have. And and then there's this issue of the universal DH, which I, I think the owners use. To hammer the players, but just like you said with the expanded uh, playoff schedule, uh, the players want to get something for that. For example, correct me if I'm wrong, what the players want is is if you're going to do a universal DH, they want an additional roster spot. That's another job. That's another yeah. person on payroll. That's And when you hear it that way, you say, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense, right? Yeah, same with expanded playoffs. And we're going to make people play more playoff games. So they should get paid more. Yeah, yeah. And, and not be taken for granted. So, uh, so just um, in your own words, just so again, because some people don't understand it, because other people still don't get it. The difference between a strike and a lockout. 94 was a strike. The players yeah. are not striking. They're not the um, the antagonists here. It's the owners that have locked the players out. Yeah,
1: and that's and that's a manipulative move by the owners because it puts the control to end the lockout in the hands of the owners. You, know, you can have a strike where maybe... You know, we decide to go out on strike for three or four weeks. Uh, There was actually a strike like this in Reno, of the Reno bus drivers, uh, where they went out on strike for a couple weeks. They came back in. They got some partial agreements on some part of the contract. They worked for another month. They went back out on another strike for two or three weeks. Then they worked for another month and they went back out for another two weeks. And you can do that in a strike. The union has more flexibility. The union can do that. With a lockout, you take the power out of the hands of the union and you make the union almost a hostage to whenever the owners decide, hey, we want to end this thing. Because a union can can end something at any time and just go back to work. They don't necessarily have to agree to a contract per se. And sometimes a union, you know, what a union can do is, you know, like what happened in Reno, they can strike for a little bit, end the strike, strike again, And, and sometimes those tactics are smart Uh, but we're at a moment where we're seeing labor struggles happen all across the country and we're starting to see more lockouts because what happens in a lockout i just got off a picket line in erie pennsylvania today at a strayer ironworks up there and we were talking about this what happens in a lockout so often is that these anti-union employers will hire a company to bring in scabs some sort of temp agency or hr agency And once those companies get hired, the employers almost always go for lockouts as a way to regain the power. Uh, And so, you know, we're going to see that in other places. And I really think Major League Baseball players could really be connecting their struggles to other people, as well as not just connecting their struggles to other people, but also bringing up the issues of minor league players. You know, only one out of every 50 minor leaguers makes it to the pros. Uh, The minimum wage is $500 a week. Uh, They recently formed a new organization. A lot of the players, former players and current players, called Advocates for Minor Leaguers, which is acting as a more non-traditional union. They don't have a collective bargaining agreement there. And and they're pushing hard. And, you know, the major league players won't take up that issue. And I know many minor league union advocates have met with them. And the players union, you know, their view is, you know, we're cutting these big deals of memorabilia over all kinds of deals and we don't want them to get in the way we don't want to play hardball too much and
0: that's just not the way power works power concedes nothing without demands well and i hear your point i mean as long as the owners kind of control the narrative um if players in the union aren't heard from uh i mean good thing they have you uh (laughs) you know sometimes we act on others behalf when they don't even realize it but before we go you said there have been did i hear you correctly because this really must it really is a serious news desert you just told us about a few strikes anecdotally i've not heard of and it's been gotten hasn't gotten haven't gotten any news coverage you said there have been 1700 strikes pandemic that we've counted so
1: this is based on news links and social media links so there's probably a ton we don't know about we can't quite put our finger on that uh but yeah, there have been 1,700 since the start of the pandemic. It's the biggest amount of strikes since 1946, the end of World War II. And I think what's interesting to bring up, Dave Dane had a great article at the American Prospect called The Great Escape, is after the end of the Civil War, after the end of World War II, we've had these periods of intense sacrifice in this country. And then people say, you know, what did, what did we sacrifice for? What did we risk our lives for? We had um, a ton of people risk their lives during the pandemic. Uh, my friend Boots Riley, the filmmaker, said to me once that the biggest mistake the ruling class made was coming up with the term essential workers because it let workers know just how valuable they were to employers. Mm. Uh, and and I think a lot of workers remember that experience of risking their lives for next to nothing. And now you see a much tighter labor market uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, we saw, you know, uh, something... A lot of there was expanded unemployment benefits, so a lot of people built up their savings. They built up. They weren't going out to eat, they weren't going on trips. Uh, They got the stimulus checks, so a lot of people built up their savings. Um, Something like three million parents left the workforce for childcare reasons. They started to realize during the pandemic that it was cheaper, in some ways, or or slightly less cheaper, to stay at home than you know commuting and not getting to spend time with their kids. Two million people retired early. Uh, Trump significantly cut down immigration so that there was a lot of people that would be coming into this country for jobs that weren't over the last couple of years. And then um, a lot of people, I mean, we saw these statistics too. A lot of people during the rece- uh, during the pandemic started their own kind of gig companies, their own little side hustles, some of which have expanded. I mean, I have a, a side hustle that's expanded. I mean, in many ways, that's uh, not so sadly, plus and mi- minus becoming the American way in some ways. And so... We have this period of a very, very tight labor market and wages rising across the board uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and we've seen, you know, some, last month there was something like 4 million people who quit their jobs, which is record levels. It wasn't quite as high as the month before. Uh, there's been some more holiday hiring, et cetera. But, you know, you're going around now. Uh, you know, I turn on the radio. They're advertising for Amazon jobs where there's $3,000 retention bonuses if you stay long enough. You know, they're offering up to $22 an hour. The local gas station sheets here is offering folks $18.75 an hour. So we're seeing in some places, wages really rise because workers now feel that they want something better, particularly workers who work during the pandemic. You know, and and the other thing to bring up is not only are these expanded unemployment, it's all these other factors, there's a lot of folks that were essential workers during the pandemic that said, I don't wanna do this anymore and figured out ways to get jobs doing other things. So we're seeing particularly high in the retail sector, a lot, a lot of walkouts. Uh, and that hasn't really been covered because, uh, you know, our publication is the only publication that's really tracking them. And, you know, we've been citing some major publications um, like The New York Times and NPR and, and Washington Post. Uh, but, you know, there's no, you know, if you look at labor struggles, right, we don't have the General Motors and the U.S. Steels and the General Electrics, where you could call a strike and you could shut down a good chunk of the country anymore. Workplaces are much smaller than that. It's much more atomized. So unless you're looking out at the trends and you're comparing trends across regions and comparing, you know, there might be a strike of 40 people here, there might be a strike of 500 people there, 1,000 people there, you're not seeing the whole picture. And I think so much of what the mainstream media and even some of the progressive media does becomes very lazy becomes very like i was saying at the beginning of the segment comes about poverty porn it becomes about um you know just bs let's call in a bunch of academic experts as opposed to going out and you know talking to folks and really you know painting things from the perspective of the people that should be reading these publications workers which is probably one of the reasons why many of these publications are failing
0: interesting would you say that the millions of people who've left their jobs for all the reasons you stated i mean people are are awakened people know they're essential now people want to be free to make their own choices i guess you wouldn't call that a strike per se but would that be sort of a, a cultural or a de facto strike sort of uh well well in many ways
1: and i think people don't look at it i mean it's very difficult to organize a union it's a very bureaucratic process and people have deep concerns and they walk out and you know it reminds me of what wb du bois once said that the largest strike in american history was when enslaved african americans walked off the plantation and you know in labor history we don't look at it that way but it is i mean you had millions of people get up and just leave and just really, you know, shut down a big chunk of the plantation economy. The fleeing and, you know, the the joining of the Union Army and, and 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 a bunch of other stuff. And so, you know, I think in many ways there's parallels to what's happening today because particularly we're seeing particularly among young black folks in the retail sector, a lot of walkouts. A lot of people posting things on TikTok, of the videos they made. I mean, there were strikes we wanted to count on our map that we couldn't where, you know, young Black folks are making creative videos where, you know, people are rolling out of a workplace and, you know, the song Roll Out's on. And we said, oh, we'd love to put it up on the strike tracker, but we can't find a physical address. You know, like, can you guys please tag the location before you make these great viral videos? But, you know, this is what's spreading is particularly on TikTok. You're seeing, you know, these videos go viral and get half million, million views. And I think it raises some questions about the top down nature of the labor movement, um, You know, they came up with this idea of striketober, which our statistics show that there was no major spike in October. The highest point of strikes we've seen since the pandemic was the month after George Floyd was killed. There was over 600 strikes. And I think that gets to something much deeper, which is that, you know, sure, unions are about getting better pay and things like that, but they're about respect and dignity. And a lot of black folks, a lot of Latino folks in this country, I mean, we're disproportionately essential workers. They know they're getting screwed, and, and they know that this is about something much bigger than just dollars and cents. It's about, it's about respect. It's about dignity. And It's about, about racial justice in many ways. And I think so often the labor movement gets into this box where it's about dollars and cents, and, and we don't want to take on uh, so many of these controversial racial issues because it's going to upset some old white steel worker in Ohio somewhere. Well, you know, those old white steel workers in Ohio, they all went in for voted for
0: Trump. So,
1: I mean, you know, let them, you know, I hope they I hope they come around those guys, but uh we shouldn't be waiting around for them either.
0: Um, lastly, um, with with all these organic strikes that have been taking place, if you will, individual and organic, during the pandemic, and we saw what happened with Major League Baseball in at the height of it last year, do you think that that gave um, major League baseball players uh, also some inspiration um, to stand up for themselves in this situation. Uh, and two, what 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 are your predictions for this lockout? Will it, and I mean, I mean, I know this isn't a strike, it's a lockout, but players are, are clearly not acquiescing. Um, what are your predictions? Will this get resolved? Because I know part of the pressure of a lockout, part of the leverage they try to use is, they'll spin it as if, well, they won't agree with us. We locked them out and we won't have baseball until the players um agree. I, I don't I think in the long term that may backfire for the owners, but 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 what what are your thoughts? Was as others were inspired during the pandemic, do does the players union or the MLB players seem equally inspired? And what do you think is gonna happen? Well I think um
1: I, I think I think you know the strikes last year really did encourage players and show them how much support they got, uh, and there were some really powerful scenes. You know when Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw both decided the Dodgers weren't going to play, and that was broadcast on ESPN. That was a huge moment. Uh, and Mookie Betts said that you know he really felt like he was more part of the team when he saw guys like Kershaw getting his back. And so they did have a, a test run, and so they've been through this and they've seen that fans will get their back. And I think the strikes last year, which were over racial justice issues, I think is a key reason why the players need to connect this to things happening in people's everyday lives. Because people felt for the players because they connected it to racial justice struggles. People were out in the streets and people connected with that. Um, And I think, you know, the one thing about social media, look, I've been a labor reporter for 15 years. You know, pre-social media, you'd go out and you'd cover a picket line. People would only find out if they got support if there was a nice news article or maybe some friends or family came up to them. But now I, I picked up on this covering the teacher strikes in West Virginia and elsewhere. You know, if a player posts, you know, if a teacher or a player or some worker posts, you know, hey, I'm going out on strike on social media and a couple hundred of their friends like it, well, they know folks have their back and they know who they are. And, you know, if you look at what the players even did. You know, because MLB had to scrub from the statistics pages all the, the the faces of the players. So they put up these silhouettes, and all the players started putting up silhouettes of themselves. And they saw that this was getting thousands of likes and retweets. And so, even though, you know, the players' union's leaders might be socially conservative, I mean, these players, they're all on social media. They're talking to folks. They're, they're not in some bubble, some vacuum. Uh, they know they have support. So I don't You know, I I try to avoid predictions and labor struggles sometimes. Um, And so I think what's going to wind up happening is this lockout's going to go on for a couple months. There's going to be a few folks whose businesses get kind of bled dry by this. Because, you know, a lot of these guys making big money also have businesses on the side in sports. And so there'll be a couple people that are hurt. I think they'll get close to spring training. And and we'll see what happens then. Uh, I think it all depends on how the owners are and how much support players can organize against them and uh, I don't know it could be a turning point um, I just don't want to see but at the same time you know there, there is a real challenge of you know with every sort of revolution or moment of huge change like we have now there's always a reactionary force against them and losing a baseball strike uh, losing a baseball lockout a baseball labor dispute could really hurt other workers outside of that fell because workers will feel like nobody got their back. And, you know, you're already seeing this. I'm, I'm seeing this when I go out and talk to people casually here in Pittsburgh, people saying, well, why aren't people going back to work? And I say to them, I say, you know, would you want to go in the middle of a pandemic and work at McDonald's for 9.15 hours? You should go take that job then. <laughs> go fill that job. Let somebody else take your white collar job, you know?
0: Why don't you have, be our guest? Folks, check out paydayreport.com. Had no idea all this was going on. We all should be on top of this. Yeah, uh, we should talk more. This is fun. Thank you. No, no, really. And and we want to call on Mike Elk again, folks, to, to keep us informed. Please do keep us informed. And, and don't even wait on me, Mike. If there's something you need to let our audience know about, reach out so we can get the word out. Because this has been inspiring. And I think we need to know more about what's going on out here in labor. Uh, and folks, uh, pay close attention to this lockout. It's not a strike. The the owners are the culprits here. They're in control. Let's see, let's see what happens. Folks, check them out. Mike Elk at paydayreport.com, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and also Mike Elk on Twitter. Uh, love your uh your your Twitter profile picture too. You want to tell us about that? You got Jimmy Stewart and Duke Ellington. You ever what, seen the what?
1: movie Anatomy of a
0: Murder? Yeah, yeah. Duke Ellington it's- scored that movie.
1: Yeah, I, I, I listened to that soundtrack about 30 times before I ever saw the movie. And when I saw it, it was actually, I was laid off uh, from In These Times Magazine. It was back in the day. And somebody gave me a copy of a Duke Ellington autobiography. And I was living, not autobiography, oh, biography. Duke Ellington biography. Somebody gave me a copy of Duke Ellington biography. And I was living in D.C. and I went to a lot of the sites where he grew up. And Duke Ellington, you know, talk about a, a union guy. I mean, this was someone who always needed a band around him, right. who kept his folks around him, who, who really couldn't compose. And, and it's actually kind of interesting. I live two blocks from where Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington met. There's a, there's a plaque there. They, they actually have a plaque commemorating the meeting outside. And, um, you know, I really like that, that shot. Uh, it's from a scene in the movie where Jimmy Stewart and Duke Ellington are playing in a roadhouse together. And I really like that because Duke was a guy always reinventing himself, constantly uh, trying to to reinvent himself, to, uh, uh, you know, come up with new songs. He wrote something, he published something like over 2,300 songs, which might still be the record for most songs ever published. Uh, Maybe someone passed that up since then. Uh, And Jimmy Stewart, though, was also a person of reinvention, you know, Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, Western PA legend, um, he uh, volunteered pre-World War II. He tried to volunteer twice as a pilot to fly bombers. Uh, He was denied twice because he was too skinny, so he had to hire a weight trainer. He came in the third time to get weighed, uh, and they told him he was a couple pounds under, so he went out and had a huge lunch and came back and barely passed. And he was age 30. So, I mean, Jimmy Stewart had just won the Best Actor in 1940, but he was an anti-fascist. And so he entered in April 41, about nine months before World War II. And then since he was this big, famous actor, the U.S. military wouldn't let him into combat. And he really fought to get into combat. He had to pull some strings. And, you know, his father had been in combat and his grandfather. And so he winded up flying something like 50 B-17 missions over, over Europe in some pretty bloody fights. Uh, and he refused after the war to ever do war movies because of it. And he did It's a Wonderful Life. And so uh, I really love uh, Anatomy of a Murder, Otto Preminger, obviously, you know, as a, as a Russian Jew, Otto Preminger is a big hero, uh, somebody who, who broke the blacklist as well as dated black women as well. You know, he was a, a pioneer. And so, you know, it's a movie about rape. And, and I just love that scene in the movie where Jimmy Stewart, you know, and sort of when we were starting Payday, we, you know, I said, well, we have to do a crowdfunding effort. And ultimately, It's a Wonderful Life is a movie about crowdfunding. Uh, You know, the end scene where they all of a sudden come together and the whole community saves the community bank. You know, it's a crowdfunding scene and we've kept it up for a while. And, uh, you know, just, you know, being after political, after getting fired, you know, I I love that movie. I watched it a million times. And so I've always kept that up on there to think of, you know, what it must have been like for Jimmy Stewart, two people that really reinvented themselves who were through some tough stuff. And Ellington was through some tougher stuff than people gave him credit for. He wasn't someone who talked about himself very much he very much avoided talking about himself. I mean, he would talk about his people in his band, he would talk about his music, but he he wasn't someone to boast. And he was actually a very, very private person. And a very eccentric person, you know. He would drink just straight hot water. You know, he wouldn't drink tea, he would just have cups of hot water.
0: Hot water, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, and so, uh, you know, we have that photo up there to sort of pay tribute to that scene where Jimmy Stewart is, is the out of, you know, voted out of office DA with a small little law firm and and
0: he meets Duke, and Duke
1: says, "Hey, why don't we sit down and jam out for a while?" And so I, I just always love that scene.
0: Yeah, no, it's that's great. Um, and you mentioned Politico, folks. So you know, we've been talking about a lot about Politico and some of the dirt it's doing. It's it's disproportionate. a lot. Yeah, yeah, disproportionate dirty coverage of Kamala Harris. Even did a big headline the other day about how she doesn't use AirPods, like you know, in, anything kneecap her. Um, and it's also they were upset about. Uh, uh, Dana Milbank at the Washington Post uncovering the disproportionate negative coverage, greater negative coverage of Trump, than of, uh, I mean of Biden than of Trump. And Politico was at, at the top of it. So folks, that, that uh, trucks with what Mike has told us. He was fired for trying to organize a union of Politico. So it all kind of, that all kind of ends. Well, they, they just unionized. It took them six years, but they did it. Good, well, about time, about time. Mike Elk folks Mike Elk on Twitter paydayreport.com Mike thank you buddy thank you so much thanks for having me on thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain please remember to listen like and wherever you get your podcasts please give the show a five star rating and please do spread the word let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic if all hearts and minds are clear it has been Made Plain